0: Out of the 24 who were killed, were Americans who had come to learn in the I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, it is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Today we're going to go on to what seems to be a very popular topic to everyone, uh, we're gonna go to part two about the Jewish mafia. Um, this today I was when I was leaving my my house to bring my kids to school and noticed I live in a newish type of neighborhood in Beit Shemesh, and they are pouring cement uh, for a building foundation across the street. And as they're pouring cement down deep into the foundations of the building, I'm thinking about the old mafia saying about giving someone a pair of cement shoes and how lucky I am that uh, across the street from my house where they're pouring cement, they're not putting any people inside, and there's no mafia around here doing that. And it reminded me that I owe a part two. Part one generated an amazing response. Um, People really like the topic. It's interesting. Uh, One of my favorite was a story that a listener shared that he allegedly heard from an eyewitness uh, to the story, about how Bugsy Siegel and Meyer Lansky, um, they wanted to help out their brethren uh, during the war, which we'll get to in this episode. They actually did help them in their own way in the United States, but they wanted to help them in Europe as well. And they wanted to donate money money for rescue work. And they initiated, since both of them originated from the Lower East Side. Actually, I think Bugsy Siegel is from Williamsburg, not the Lower East Side, but Lansky was for sure from the East Side. They initiated a contact with the Biyan Rebbe, and they um, arranged with him to meet up with him every once in a while during the war, and they gave him a lot of cash to help with rescue work for refugees or for to send to Jews uh, stuck under Hitler, under the Nazis in Europe. So that was uh, their part. It's an interesting story, if it's if it's true. Now... Today I want to start talking a, a little bit about um about the Newark uh New Jersey Jewish mobsters. Um it's not very you know very well known today, but Newark used to have a very impressive Jewish community. The third ward was a very big Jewish area of the town, of the city, and um very prominent and happening place for many, many years. In fact, I once heard a uh, older Hasidish uh speaking, I forget what type of, you know, one of these public speeches somewhere about something many years ago, and he originated from Newark, which you don't meet that often people who came from Newark, and he said, you know I don't know the difference between New York and Newark, and he said how you spell it in, in Yiddish or Hebrew, he said Newark, and he said it with a very heavy Uh, Galitianic, Hasidic accent. He said, uh, Newark is Nin Vuv Raish Kif. And New York is Nin Vuv Yid Raish Kif. Uh, The difference between Newark and New New York is a Yid. There are Yidin in New York and today there's no longer any Yidin in Newark. That was his point. But once upon a time, there was. I remember my grandfather used to tell me that he used to go he lived in Crown Heights in Brooklyn, and he used to, uh, when he was a child in the 1930s, he would go visit his aunt and uncle in Newark, um, where there was a very uh, large Jewish community. So the mob boss there was a fellow by the name of Abner, known as Longy Zwillman, and he he was known as the Al Capone of New Jersey. He, during Prohibition, like most of the other uh, mobsters, he rose to fame during Prohibition, importing alcohol mainly from Canada, and he was you know, he went into gambling afterwards and other rackets, and he was the boss there for over 30 years he, he you know he was the main say in, in everything that went on, he was a big guy, that's where he got his name Longy from, originally he would, when he was younger, he would help the Jewish push cart owners in in Newark, and they used to call him over Longy, and so he got his nickname um, but he was a feared fellow, and he had um, he had the police and most of the politicians in the Newark area under his control for many years. He used that to the advantage of the Jewish people when he and organized a group together with a few other uh, people in the area called the Minutemen during the nineteen thirties uh, They nicknamed it the Minutemen after the revolutionary war era Minutemen and um and it was to beat up these uh, pro nazi rallies that took place during the 1930s and this group of, the, of jewish mobsters and 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 prize fighters and wrestlers they would get together on a minute's notice and uh, they would break up rallies they would beat them up they would put stink gas and all kinds of, uh, all kinds of stuff to break up these uh, pro nazi uh, rallies during the time of the 1930s one time he was by a friend's funeral. A friend of his had died of natural causes. And uh and he went to the funeral and he stayed outside the chapel. And the widow of his friend was was rather insulted. She went over to him and said, Abner, why didn't you come inside? Weren't you and my husband close friends? And Longy's Wilman, the great mob boss of Newark, uh said, I'm a coin. I can't go into the cemetery. I'm not allowed. That's <laughs> uh, Again, like we spoke about last time, the paradox of, of Jewish identity in uh, in within the mob. Um, he died in 1959. He was found hung in his house. Um, big question how he died. Was it a suicide like the police decided or did the mob bump him off because they were scared that he was going to start cooperating with the feds because he had been subpoenaed to testify? Um, either way... Um, he had a big Leviyah, a couple of thousand people. Incredibly enough, came to Leviyah. He was buried in the Jewish cemetery. His mother was still alive. After he was being, he was the mob boss for over 30 years. His mother was already in her 80s, and she um, she was very close with his mother, very devoted to her. And she followed his uh, his by his funeral. He, she followed his uh, casket, crying, "My Abba, my Abba." His name was Abner. Uh, and this uh, Yiddish imam crying for her son. Another mob boss in Newark was a fellow by the name of Joseph Statcher, uh, known as Doc Statcher, also big in prohibition and gambling and the, and the works, close with Lansky, uh, like, like most of the mobsters of his day. And uh, eventually, what he, the reason that he, he attained fame is that um, he was caught for all kinds of tax evasions and things, and he was stripped of his citizenship. He was one, like Lansky, he was one of the few American Jewish mobsters who was actually born in Europe. He was born in the Ukraine and made, you know, and immigrated with his family uh, when he was about 10 years old, um, to, um, to, to the United States. So they stripped him of his citizenship and, uh, they were threatening to deport him. And he eventually decides to take advantage of the law of return um which was the state of Israel, that any Jew anywhere in the world can come to Israel and ask for citizenship. So he moves to Israel in the nineteen sixties. And all these different Israeli politicians from even before, from even when he lived in New York, they were they knew him, they had connections with him. And you know, there was there's a whole maybe we'll get to that in part three, the relationship that the Israeli government has with the Jewish mafia mob in uh in America. And Teddy Kolek, the famous uh, mayor of Yerushalayim, was close with him and others. So here he lives in his later years, in his golden years, he lives in a penthouse in Tel Aviv, and living it up, and uh, and everyone loves him, and he, he has it good. One of the people who was close with him at the time was a uh, religious politician in the Knesset named Menachem Porush. And, um, and Menachem Parish asked him at one point to invest with him to buy a piece of property in today's Zichron Myshe right off of Kikar Davidka, Davidka Square in the center of Jerusalem, that he was going to make into some sort of a philanthropic, uh, institution, like an orphanage or, I don't remember, some, some sort of tzedakah, or something or another. And, and, you know, him being one, you know, one, wants, wants to give to charity, wants to, recover for, you know, uh, for his past, his problematic past. So he gives him a large percentage of what he needed. Parge then went ahead and had second thoughts about the whole thing and decided to build a hotel which would turn a profit instead. And It wouldn't be a non-for-profit institution, but rather a very profitable place. And he, that was the famous Merkaz Hotel. Today it's the Prima Palace, the Merkaz Hotel. Although it's hard to imagine Yerushalayim without the uh, Waldorf or the, uh, the David Citadel or, or the, even the plaza. But at one point in the 1970s and 80s, the Merkaz Hotel was the Haimische Hotel in the center of Yishlan. That was the only place. And it was owned by Menachem Parish for decades. He even lived there at the end of his life. And, um, and, uh, it was built with the money that he got from Doc Statcher. And Doc Statcher wasn't excited about this, this whole thing that now this, uh, religious rabbi with a big beard it ripped him off, basically, and it's saying that it would be for its dukkah, and now he's making money on the hotel. So what does Statcher do? He goes ahead and brings it to an Israeli court. Now, you can't make up this story. This is, this is like, you know, in the middle of an Israeli court, you have Menachem Parsh, a politician, officially a rabbi, a big beard, very religious looking fellow. And you have Doc Statcher, a mobster from, from New York, who now lives in Tel Aviv. And he's suing him and 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 Parrish to defend himself goes all out on 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 stature's past he says who are you you're a criminal, you're a crook, you're a mobster, you're a gan you're going to sue me in court, take your money back. Who wants money from criminals? who wants money from mob people and he says you're call yourself a rabbi and a politician, and here you're taking something that was supposed to be for profit and you're making it into a hotel and the media had a circus with it. Now, if we get back to New York, to Lansky, to serious business, to, to, to mob business. So Meyer Lansky is building up in a gambling empire in, um, in, first he builds up Las Vegas. Um, he later made his real killing in, in Cuba. Um, he, right up to the revolution, he had a very close relationship with the uh, corrupt dictator of Cuba, uh, but, Stu- I'm not, I have no, no chance of pronouncing his first name right, so at least I'll hope for his last name. There was loads of corruption there, and Lansky built up an empire of casinos, of hotels, of uh, and made most of his money there, and he, in all likelihood probably lost most of his money there. No one really knows where Lansky's money went. Um, he had Swiss accounts, and he had all kinds of things, but it's very likely that during the revolution he lost a fortune of money, but that's Cuba was was Meyer Lansky's territory for many years. But before that, he started to build up Vegas. Vegas, Las Vegas today, the whole gambling, whole situation there was originally built by Jewish gangsters. Um, And Lansky spearheaded the efforts. He sent Bugsy Siegel, his crony, down there to, to build up the Flamingo Hotel. Bugsy Siegel went over budget and was taking too long to build it. Well, you know, you don't cross the mafia. And eventually... They ordered a hit on Bugsy Siegel, and Lansky reluctantly agreed, even though it was his close friend. And um, and the 1947 Siegel is is whacked, as we as we'll say, in California, and um, and uh, he he he's out of the picture. Um, interestingly enough, a couple of months before his father had died, Siegel's father had died, who was still on the Lower East Side. Uh, proud and upstanding member of the Biala Stukar Shul on the Lower East Side, and uh, therefore there's a the family was still a member. So right under his father's fresh yardside plaque, they put another plaque for Berish or Binyamin or whatever his name was, Siegel, which allegedly still exists till today. I've seen pictures of it. I've never gone down there to actually see it, but I've seen pictures of it, and they're, they're, it's, easy to, it's pretty easy to find. Uh, so B- Bugsy Siegel has the site lamp on the Bialystoker Bialystoker Shul. Gus Greenbaum and Moe Sedway, two other Jewish gangsters, walk into the Flamingo Hotel a few minutes after in Vegas. A few minutes after uh, Siegel's killed in California, and they take over the. And they're sent by Lansky. They're you know until Greenbaum himself was subsequently hit a few years later. Uh, Moe Sedway died a, a civilian's death though. Um, and and they build up the Flamingo, and later uh, the rest of the Vegas uh, situation there. But what made some of these gangsters unique was their contribution and their feeling of solidarity and responsibility to the Jewish people during the 1930s with the Nazi rise to power. Uh, there was an organization, which I may have mentioned the last time or in another context of another episode, there was a, a party or organization or something or another called the German Bund, which was um, not to be confused with the Jewish Bund in Poland, uh, the Yiddishist Socialist Party. This was basically a Nazi party in the United States, very anti-Semitic, and they organized rallies. Their their peak was in a 20,000-person rally in Madison Square Garden. And at one point, um, um, uh, uh, a Jewish judge named Nathan Perlman and Stephen Wise, the most prominent and influential a uh, Jewish leader in America, a reform rabbi, a famous reform rabbi in in New York, they met with Lansky secretly, and they said, "Look, you know the police can't stop them because there's freedom of expression and gathering together and rallies. And you definitely, we definitely don't really want anyone to be killed because then there'll be problems. But do anything short of killing them, you have a free hand and go ahead, break up those rallies, you and your guys." And he says, uh, uh, "Yeah, no problem, but." You know, try to make sure you have influence with the Jewish press. Make sure we don't get bad press. Make sure that they don't uh, speak out against us, about us as as gangsters and criminals. And they agreed. It was a gentleman's agreement, and, and Lansky kept his part of the deal. Uh, they did not keep theirs. Uh, and then he wise himself, and uh, and the, the media went, all oh, these Jewish gangsters embarrassing the Jewish people. But uh, Lansky believed that he was doing the right thing, and uh, the police cooperated, they looked the other way, and the Jewish mobsters broke up these rallies, he even describes how 15 of them were able to break up a rally of thousands of people by just showing a little muscle, by showing some toughness, and they all went flying, they all went ran, running away, uh, terrified. Um, now, it wasn't only Lansky and other Jewish gangsters, Bugsy Siegel was actually on a visit to Italy, um, and he... It was staying in the same hotel, just a couple of doors down from, you know, Mussolini and Hitler were allies in the 1930s, before the war breaks out, but they were already allies. And uh, there was emissaries, uh, government representatives of, of the Nazi government visiting Italy. And the two of them who were staying right down the hall from Bugsy Siegel was Hermann Göring, and Josef Goebbels. Gering was, uh, was uh, Hitler's right-hand man, the head of the Luftwaffe, the Air Force, and Josef Goebbels, of course, was the propaganda minister, and Siegel met them and spoke to them, actually, and did not like them, and he was very upset. This is leaders of Nazi Germany, and they're anti-Semitic, and he decided, like a good gangster, that he's gonna hit them, he's gonna whack them, he's gonna get rid of them, and, and no one will know any better. He was convinced out of it by by um, by his hosts in Italy, and he and he did not do it. what one of the what if, what ifs that I sometimes get as as a question is, what would have happened had Siegel gone ahead and gotten rid of, um, Garing and and Gebels? Would that have changed eventually the final solution or the Holocaust? And we'd like to think that yes, it's extremely unlikely, um, Goering played almost no direct role other than giving a few orders and signing a few documents, but he did not play any direct role in the Final Solution or the Holocaust. He, and and even if he wouldn't have been around to lead the Luftwaffe, it probably would have even been better off because he did not do a great job leading the Luftwaffe, especially in the later parts of the war. Uh, he, was, he claimed to be able to relieve the siege at uh, Stalingrad just by giving airlifts for the Sixth Army, stuck there. And of course, the Sixth Army starved to death before surrendering, Friedrich Polis surrendering on February 1st, 1943, and the decimation of the German Sixth Army. So that was a promise of the Luftwaffe. And he was quite incompetent as the head of the German Air Force, especially in the later stages of the war, in the early parts of the war, it's debatable. So I don't think that anything would have changed have had Goering been gone especially as far as the Holocaust is concerned and even more so with Goebbels he was a propaganda minister and did plenty of damage in the propaganda sphere there were people who were indispensable to the Holocaust uh, you know Reinhard Heydrich maybe and probably Christian Wirth Wirth and Odilo uh, Globocnik and maybe a couple of other SS officers of course Hitler himself but people like Goebbels and Goering were not directly involved, and it's unlikely that that would have uh, influenced anything. By the way, Luciano wasn't only the Jewish uh, mobsters that were helping out with the war effort. Uh, Lucky Luciano was um, was in jail at the beginning of the war. Lansky convinces the the um, the American government that Luciano still controls the docks of New York City. And since the U.S. was worried about German sabotage, keep in mind that a U-boat, uh, fired off of the coast of New Jersey. 30 miles off the coast of New Jersey, a U-boat tried to sink an American ship. That's how close the German Navy was, the Kriegsmarine, uh, was at the, at the beginning, at their peak of the war. And they were worried about sabotage. So they wanted someone who could control the docks and, and they took Luciano out of jail. And then he eventually also told them that he still has contacts in Sicily. So 1943, when the American uh, army and marines are invading Sicily in, uh, in, uh, in trying to carry out what Churchill called the, the invasion of the soft underbelly of Europe, which was not a great idea, but we're not going to get into Churchill's uh, military strategy at this point. And so Luciano says, I have contacts in Sicily, I'll help the American army. And in reward, they commuted his sentence and deported him to Sicily uh, after the war. And he's actually interviewed, Luciano was interviewed years after the war, and they asked him, what does he miss most about living in the United States, about living in New York? And he said, I'll be honest, what I miss most is the corned beef in the Jewish delis on the Lower East Side, on Delancey Street. That's what he said. So there. You have his close relationship with the, um, with the Jewish people. Lansky retires eventually after, especially after the re- revolution in Cuba. Um, he retires from active involvement in the mob and he moves to Florida. And there's, you know, people who saw him and there's pictures of it even of him walking his dog as an elderly man down Collins Avenue on the average morning in Florida, just like any other elderly New York Jew. Straight up the stereotype. He called Florida the promised land and encouraged other retired mobsters to move there. And, uh, and uh, he lived out his life uh, pretty much peacefully until he died of natural causes in 1983. So that's, um, a little bit more about the mafia, the Jewish mob and, uh, and their role in helping out Jewish causes during, uh, the 1930s. And of course, the interesting uh, dynamics within the, the Jewish mob itself. So this was Yehudi Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com for questions, comments, sources, tours and trips to places of interest and excitement in Jewish history. You can subscribe now to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at jsoundbites and I hope you enjoyed.